take a nice deep breath in and let it out. Because today I'm speaking with Mary Massery, PT, DPT, DSE. Yep, she's got a lot of initials and a lot of experience and a lot of information on breathing, respiration, and the pulmonary system and its connection to movement and posture. I think if you are a pediatric physical therapist, a physical therapist of adults, or a parent of a child with special needs, you will get so much out of this particular podcast. So listen along and enjoy. Go, walk, and flow. This podcast, Special Needs in Motion, is dedicated to helping individuals learn to move and function at their best. Listen along to learn a little and maybe even laugh and be inspired. Please review and share so others can have access to our community. I'm your host, Ilana, a physical therapist, product developer, mom, wife, author, blogger, and podcaster. I love a great discussion, coaching the families with whom I work, and finding solutions. I love putting the fun and play into therapy. And it is a pleasure to be your host. Just a quick note, if you'd like to sponsor an episode, please reach out to me at specialneedsinmotion.com or just check the show notes. And any information shared here should not be taken as direct advice. You know the drill. Consult your local therapist, professional, or doctor before trying any suggestions. Well, let's go. Well, first of all, it is such a pleasure and honor to have you here with me this evening. You're one of those really well-known, famous, educated, Mm -hmm. highly educated PTs. So thank you so much for giving me your time. But I think our listeners are going to really learn a lot tonight. So I appreciate it. Well, I am just fascinated with your research. I don't know a lot about your research, but just the topic that you uh, educate everybody on, a therapist to take your courses. And I do home health pediatrics. So this idea of the pulmonary system and all the other systems that you're going to touch on and their connection with uh, the body and posture really resonates with me as it's, it's kind of a mystery, honestly. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to first just hear a little bit about yourself and how maybe you got interested in this area. Uh, sure. I'd be happy to do that. I've been in Chicago my whole life, by the way. So uh, I was very influenced by local PTs around Chicago and in particular, my cardiopulmonary instructor, when I was at Northwestern and she made it very clear from the get-go that every patient is first and foremost a cardiopulmonary patient because they must breathe, their heart must beat, and their blood must circulate. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Until I went out and actually started working in neuro rehab at the Rehab Institute of Chicago, which is currently called the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. And when I first got there, I'm working with patients with spinal cord injury, and I don't know anything because I'm a new grad, except I noticed that every one of our patients who was quadriplegic sooner or later wound up with a pneumonia. And finally, I said to my supervisor, I'm like, look, I don't know anything because I'm a new grad, 
But what I do know is this seems kind of dumb that we know it's going to happen and we let it happen. And she said, well, it just, it does happen. I don't think you can prevent it. And I said, could I try? And she's like, sure, kid, have at it. And that was the whole start for me is when I realized that breathing physiology and the mechanics for upright posture were so tightly woven together that you couldn't treat breathing without treating posture. It changed the entire dynamics of my career. And had I not had Donna Fraunfelter as an undergrad instructor just by dumb luck that I went to Northwestern, I don't think I'd be doing what I'm doing today. So that was kind of the fun part. And the more I began to explore it, the more I realized, wow, these things are so tied together. And if you pay attention to breathing mechanics, you can change the physiology. And sometimes if you pay attention to the physiology, you can change the breathing mechanics. So that just changed the whole trajectory of of, um, my career. I wound up starting to teach when I had only a little bit more than a year of experience because I just thought differently. And it, it doesn't mean that everybody else is thinking wrong. It just means I thought differently and it was a different perspective to bring to the idea of physical therapy to really merge body systems. So, yeah, and that's so beautiful, you know, that at any point we can bring a perspective and we can expand it and explore it and be curious. Mm-hmm. It's beneficial for everybody. Right. I, I have a little bit in common because I also started as a new grad working in spinal cord injury. Oh, at um, Shepherd? Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I love Shepherd. It's a great yeah. organization. Yeah, that was really a gift, I will say, those few years that I was there. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to hear a little bit about uh, breathing and respiration, pulmonary system, and its connection to movement and posture. And I have watched some of your videos. I love the soda pop explanation. Mm-hmm, the soda pop can. Yeah. Yeah. And it just was like a light bulb that went off. Yeah. So uh, maybe you could touch just on a little bit of that. Sure. Uh, to me, it was always obvious after that very short time as a new grad that you can't ignore breathing with anything. It's part of every movement that we possibly have for our entire lives. So it got me into exploring more the the mechanical relationship of breathing to postural control. And when I was in graduate school doing my doctorate of science, we had a big assignment, develop a model That would explain your perspective on, and then you could fill in the blank, and why was the perspective of breathing and postural control. There had been research up to that point, particularly by Dr. Paul Hodges down in Australia, where he actually showed empirically using needle EMGs that the diaphragm responds to postural demand as much as it responds to a respiratory demand. And of course, when you think about it, it's like, oh, no, duh. It's actually interconnected with the stomach muscles and the pelvic floor muscles and the chest muscles. So, of course, it's multitasking, doing both postural control and breathing. But that was novel, you know, 20, 25 years ago. So when I was in graduate school in the early 2000s, I was trying to put something together that would make it easier for my colleagues to relate to it in a way that that I felt comfortable with it. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks 
It's a soda pop can. It's all about pressure management. It's not about the abdominal muscles. And specifically, it's not about the transverse abdominus, which always cracks me up. It's like, wait, you guys are going to pick one-fourth of one muscle in the entire trunk and say that's core stability. Nope. (laughs) So, uh, nope, it's not. It's part of core stability, but it's certainly not the only thing that uh, controls postural control. So when I started to look at it from a perspective of pressure management, I realized that's really the point I want to get across. That when we're looking at postural control, we're looking at control of trunk pressures over time and over a base of support, which means we have to look at the ability of the patient to generate pressures, meaning they've got to use muscles, but it's not just one, it's all muscles that are involved in this pressure management, which will include the diaphragm and abdominal muscles, pelvic floor, chest muscles, vocal folds, back muscles, etc. You've got to be able to generate that force. You've got to be able to modulate or regulate that force, and you've got to be able to maintain it. If you can do one sit-up, that's no good. You have to be able to do the equivalent of a thousand sit-ups every day in order to maintain your posture against gravity. Gravity wants to pull pull us back down to earth. That's what it's supposed to do. Keep you Mm -hmm. well grounded. But we spend our entire lives trying to come up against gravity. So once I started to really explore explaining postural control from a pressure management perspective, that that can of Coke is not strong at all. It's just a thin aluminum shell. And if that pop top is topped, is popped, the can is easily crushed. Once you started looking at it that way, you went, oh, wow, I need valves. I have to have valves that keep the pressure in. And then valves that allow that diaphragm to move on the inside, changing pressures in both the thorax and the abdomen. And it's got to be able to do that for physiologic health, for your heart, your vascular system, your lymphatic system, postural control, GI, all those systems, as well as breathing, just plain old breathing. So once once that came in my head, I was actually at home with my kids who were in college. They had just come home for break. I'm sitting in the kitchen on a stool. We're all talking. Their friends are over, and they were having, uh, you know, sodas and beers, and they're crushing the cans and throwing them in a big recycle bin. And I just said, Eureka, that's it. (laughs) I left the party, went into my office, and typed as fast as I could for as many hours as I could, and it laid the foundation for my doctoral research. Wow. Yeah, it was kind of fun. It was fun to have that epiphany. Sometimes you don't have that. But like you say, once you look at that model, it's like, oh, yeah, the aluminum can isn't strong. Oh, yeah, our skeletal structure is not strong. No wonder our pediatric patients are so prone to spinal deformities, chest wall deformities, and other skeletal deformities based on gravity, is simply stronger than they are. Their soda Mm -hmm. pop cans are being crushed by atmospheric pressure. Yeah. So then what is your approach? 
Uh, in other words, are you approaching trying to work on the diaphragm? Or are you like, how do you? Yeah, so that? what do I do? Breathing or postural control? My answer would be yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's got to be both. So once you recognize yeah. that the diaphragm is constantly moving, constantly changing pressures in the thorax and the abdomen, constantly multitasking. It's like, okay, then I need to understand what are all the functions of the diaphragm. I need to understand that there's a valve on the top, the vocal folds, the valve on the bottom, the pelvic floor. So which thing is dysfunctional? So let's take a real simple problem that will make it easy. So let's say that you have a child with low tone. Well, that's pretty easy because anyone who does pediatrics has at least <laughs> yeah. one child in their mind right now who has a very low tone, poochy little belly that you want to just grab and blow raspberries in. So think <laughs> about this. If they are low tone, when the diaphragm descends, it's actually not going to increase intra-abdominal pressure because the pressure needs that abdominal wall in order to change to positive pressure, right? Correct. So if I Correct. don't have the ability to increase positive pressure, I'm actually not going to stimulate in that little baby intercostal activation because the intercostals are just going to get sucked in with the chest wall. Mm -hmm. So once you start to think of it that way, okay, it's a pressure system. The diaphragm's moving, but it's not able to effectively change pressures in both the thorax and abdomen. So their respiratory mechanics are impaired and their postural mechanics are impaired. Well, which is going to win? You have to breathe. You don't have to sit up. You don't have to stand. You don't have to walk and you don't have to talk. Those are all things you want to do. That's thriving, but you, mm -hmm. you must survive. So that turns those little kids around to say, all I'm going to pay attention to is the next breath. And then we wonder, why aren't they making eye contact? Why aren't they trying harder? <laughs> they, they are trying harder. They're trying to stay alive. So they're not interested in talking. They're not interested in oral feeds. They're not interested in weight bearing on extremities because they can't unless they hyperextend the middle joint because they can't they can't generate regulate and maintain proximal pressures so they can't control distal force so then it's going to make me say okay 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 now that's a whole lot to think about where could i start oh you did the right thing in starting and recognizing that breathing and postural control are the same set of muscles same set of muscles in case i didn't get that through to your audience in the <laughs> first got, two times, it's the same set of muscles. So I'm going to have to support the function of the diaphragm for both breathing and postural control. So why don't I give them an abdominal binder? Why don't I was just about to ask yeah. that. <laughs> I was just why don't I give I like, them some compressive force that they can't do yet on their own? Doesn't mean they have to wear mm -hmm. a binder the rest of their lives. Uh, some of my kids do mm -hmm. because they have a spinal cord injury. They'll wear an abdominal binder their whole lives. But maybe I mm -hmm. have a child who has Down syndrome or just kind of general low idiopathic low tone. They don't exactly know why. I'm going to use an abdominal binder, anchoring that lower rib cage as the abdominal muscles do, anchoring it down onto the pelvis so that when the diaphragm descends, it actually increases intra-abdominal pressure. 
that's going to translate into greater force potential into the legs. So if we want them to weight bear through their legs, we have to give them proximal pressures. On top of it, right. if I have those proximal pressures in the abdomen, it allows the intercostals, which develop a little bit later in normal development, that's more like 6 to 12 months of age, it helps to stimulate, because of better alignment, the intercostals to react. If I then add upper extremity weight bearing with the elbows straight so that it actually demands a chest or torso response, I'm going to strengthen the chest. Think of how easy that whole connection was. I just needed mm -hmm. to understand the connection. The big thing was give them an abdominal binder, not so much that they reflux, not so little that it falls off, but enough to where you say, ooh, their diaphragm is better support. It doesn't descend down to their pelvis. It actually has abdominal excursion of the viscera between the belly button and the rib cage, which is where it should be with normal healthy pressure. I'm seeing their rib cage start to expand, the intercostals, the pecs, even the upper accessory muscles are starting to come in in a nice healthy way. And now I'm noticing as one of my outcome measures that they are willing to weight bear through their arms or legs or arms and legs with the middle joint in a neutral position. That, that's nice. huge. That's when I'm going to get head control. That's when I'm going to start to get some babbling. Because as soon as I'm weight bearing on my extremities, I'm actually engaging the vocal folds. So that's when the speech therapists are like, how did you do that? Just always tell them it's magic. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Do you have partic any particular abdominal binders that you that are your favorite that you really like, or do you make um, them uh, yourself? No, I don't or? make it myself. Um, <laughs> I use RCAI, which is Restorative Care of America Inc. I don't work for them. They just make binders, as well as a million other orthotics, which is great. Those would be kind of your traditional white, you know, hard, um, not hard, but uh, very firm elastic binders with Velcro. But some of your kids mm -hmm. might just be able to get away with some, um, uh, more am I thinking of, Fabrifoam. Um, even some uh -huh. of my two and three-year-olds were just still a little bit low tone, but really getting active. But they're frustrated because they fall all the time because they can't generate enough proximal support. Give them Under Armour that is one size too small. Yes, yeah. I love that. Because I, uh, I worked for a company for a while where I was developing product and we would sell these hug shirts, mm -hmm. you know, and we basically ordered a size too small, but it was more from a sensory perspective. But I've bought, I've bought just large piece of elastic that's like eight inches yeah. wide and I've attached Velcro at different spots so it can fit different Perfect. kids. And um, I've used Perfect. that a little bit. There's a, a, if, is your audience primarily pediatric? Yes, pediatric and some parents. Oh, great. Also. Then let me give you just a little bit more with that because developmentally it, it makes a difference compared to an adult who's had normal development and then you know had a spinal cord injury or something else. So for kids in normal development, the diaphragm develops first. And if anyone is interested, they can go to my website and read a publication I did a zillion years ago it was my first professional pub publication, which was 1994, 
and normal chest wall development uh, versus atypical or what we were calling at that time, abnormal chest wall development. So they can just go to my website, download that article that would help give them a chance to read it and digest it and see a case study. Just to clarify, that's um, masserypt.com? M-A-S-S as in Sam. A lot of people think it's F. It's S as in Sam, M-A-S-S-E-R-Y-P-T.com. And then you just go to about and under about, there'll be an option for publications. So I have a lot of publications there. One would be the doctoral research we were just talking about, but one from much, much earlier was just normal chest wall development. And, you know, that doesn't change that much, right? If it was normal in 1994, Mm -hmm. it should still be normal or typical in uh, 2021. Uh, But the big thing to recognize with babies is that the diaphragm is fully ready to function at birth. It's ready to go. It's been practicing for most of the time in utero. So you come out with the baby being very heavy-handed with a preference for diaphragm breathing because it's really the primary muscle and the only significant muscle they have to breathe. As they develop, just typical development, around four to six months of age, the abs start to come in much more significantly when the baby's raising their feet and grabbing their toes and coochie-coochie-cooing. And as that happens, they're beginning to play with intra-abdominal pressure. That translates at six months and above when they're starting to do more upright positioning and more upper extremity weight-bearing. They're starting to think of going to uh, prone on extended arms because they're thinking of crawling. That's when they develop the intercostal muscles. So it is a three-stage maturation process. So one of the things I would just caution your parents as well as your pediatric therapist is don't go to a full-body Theratog or Benic binder first. First, go to some kind of abdominal binder, support the abdomen, let the chest wall learn to move off of the lower trunk support. And then later, you know, when they're... Mm -hmm year and a half or two, and they still need a little more support, Theratogs, Benic binders, ABCs, XYZs, whatever type of compressive (laughs) garment, you could use the whole body system and that would be fine. But don't do that in the beginning or else you'll still keep that little baby triangular shaped chest. Mm -hmm. I get a lot of resistance. I mean, not serious resistance if I push it, but parents really don't like to put binders on their kids. Um, I think they feel that, oh, they can sit up or they can do this, you know, like they don't really need it and their head's flopping to the side and their spine and they don't realize like how much they need You know what, this is what I do for it. There's a couple of things that I think make it easier to be able to communicate to families, especially with the young ones. I mean, my gosh, no family wants to be told your child is developmentally delayed or worse, you have some kind of true pathology. So you don't want a crutch. You don't want anything else. Please don't tell me I need any kind of equipment. I'm still sad. I'm still grieving. First of all, you've got to acknowledge that because if it was you, you would be sad and grieving and you've got to go through that with the families. The second thing to say to them is, I notice you wear glasses, right? Somebody in the room, somebody in the room has glasses or contacts. Mm -hmm. And I'm so sorry, your eyesight isn't perfect. 
but haven't those glasses or contact lenses helped you to actually participate more fully because you're actually supporting a deficit you have. It's a bummer your eyesight isn't good, but luckily we have things that can help you function better. So I think sometimes when you can bring it to that perspective, they look and go, oh yeah, I do wear glasses. It (laughs) helps me to read or to see when I'm driving or something else, or I use orthotics in the shoes. Because again, if you have a you know big enough group around there, not during COVID, but any other time, you'd have a big enough group, and you'd say, "Anybody here have orthotics in their shoes?" For sure, some PT or some family member <laughs> has the orthotics, and it's like, sure. well, "I'm really sorry to hear that your feet aren't perfectly aligned, but isn't it nice that you can just slip in a little orthotic? It aligns your foot right, and you don't have knee pain, back pain." you know, something else. So Mm -hmm. now you've normalized some adjunctive piece of equipment. Now the binder isn't a bad thing. It's just another thing like a hearing aid or your eyeglasses or orthotics in your shoes. That's excellent. You're Um, not making them different. And different is really hard when you're a parent and you just love that baby to death. You don't want them to be different. I don't want them to be different either. If I could just wave magic fairy dust and cure everyone and be oh, out of I a know. job, I would just retire early and, you know, hang out, feel good. But mm-hmm. that leads me into something mm-hmm. else that I think is really important for the pediatric therapist to understand, and that is spinal management. Because you can't have optimal breathing mechanics without spinal management that starts starts with the time that they're infants. If that child can't hold their spine up against gravity, you've got to be thinking as the therapist and eventually as the parent, what, what other equipment or environment do I need to provide for my child so that their spine does grow optimally? Because if they're low tone, I can Mm -hmm. guarantee you what it's going to look like, a long C-shaped kyphosis from their thoracic spine, from T1 right down to their sacrum. And then they're going to hyperextend the cervical spine, drool, and aspirate. And then I'm going to tell you that I'm going to be furious. I'm going to be furious because if the child has CP, a very typical diagnosis in our populations, if a child has cerebral palsy and winds up with a horribly kyphoscoliotic spine, I'm going to blame us. I'm going to blame us. They might still have a mild spinal deformity, but if it's maximal, it's probably our fault for not looking at the spine as a critical emergency from the time they're little, the same way we look at teeth. You know, I got a a set of twins that are in that situation. I got them at age three, and they were already really kyphotic. Where I see my patients is just in a specialty clinic. So I have a respiratory clinic where I see a lot of very medically complex kids as well as adults. My kids now go up to about age 40 because I've been uh, (laughs) treating for so long. So they hang out for quite a long time, but I'm only seeing them periodically. I'm not the primary therapist. I'm the consultant to their team. 
So I'm seeing really difficult patients. And when I see, say, a young adult with cerebral palsy for the first time, and I see that kyphoscoliosis and the mom or dad is reaching out saying, please help. He's struggling so hard to breathe. He gets one pneumonia after the other. I'm so afraid that the next one will be his last. And inside, I'm just fuming. And when I bring it up to mm-hmm. the medical team, very often what I'll hear back is, well, he doesn't have a scoliosis yet. And my response to them is, and you don't have teeth that are falling out yet. And they just look at me. It's like, it's the <laughs> same exact model. You and I, you, the doctor, me, the physical therapist, know exactly what's going to happen to that young child who has atypical movement over and over and over, leading to repetitive stress with bones forming according to stress laid upon them, right? That is just basic physics. We need a better model that comes from dentistry, where from the time you were very little, your mom is telling you by the time you're age two, you need to brush your teeth every day. In fact, you need to do it twice. Oh, mom, well, honey, you just do. That's just the way it is. And we're going to go to the dentist twice a year for your entire life to prevent cavities, (laughs) root canals, and teeth falling out. Yet, we wait until a child has a scoliosis to actually manage their spine. No, no, no. Not that you can't tell. I'm a little passionate about this because you can change it. You can prevent it. Maybe not entirely, but maybe you can keep it mild. Like for me, if I have a scoliosis and I've kept it to 17 degrees, man, I am a champion because once it gets into the 20s, now you have to have bracing. And if it gets to 42 or 43, the spine is collapsed and you're going to have to have surgery. So when you approach Let's say you can be preventative. No, very much preventative. It's absolutely just look at it as a a set of teeth. It's just a set of vertebrae. So I'm looking at it 100% from a preventative model, starting from the time, um, by the time the child is coming more upright. So somewhere around six months of age, certainly no later than age one. That would be very late, six to nine months of age. And many times I'll have these kids, by the time they're two, I'm saying, nope, gravity's starting to win. We did fine when they were smaller and lighter, but now that they're upright more and they've gotten heavier in a good way, uh, their spine is collapsing. I get them in a TLSO right away. And I'm going to do it with a big, fat Mm -hmm. abdominal cutout because I recognize they have to breathe. So you use a big abdominal cutout, you put an abdominal binder over it to give them the intra-abdominal pressure. And you can't believe some of the differences is just, just huge. Yeah. Wow. And then do you, are you also working with them at the same time? Sure. So you're going to do, you're going to do all your normal therapies, right? So all your normal therapies, only now you're paying attention to the vertebrae like individual teeth. And you're saying, are the vertebrae in good place? Does that allow more arm function? Does that allow the head to be upright? Does it decrease drooling? Does it increase oral feeds? Does it increase verbal communication, both articulation, length of utterance? Does it increase their ability to weight bear on their arms, weight bear on their legs? 
guess what's happening to their trunk? They're getting stronger. So I'm going to add resistance and Mm -hmm. opportunities while they're in the right alignment so that by the time their skeleton matures and they don't need the TLSO anymore, and that doesn't mean kids are wearing a a um, body brace, thoraco, lumbo, sacral orthosis for their entire growing years. Maybe they only needed it for six months or maybe six years or maybe 16 years. It really depends on the child. But by the time their skeleton is mature and the parents say, I don't know why we needed a brace. Their spine is fine. Then I just give myself a clap and a (laughs) pat on the back and go, well done, Mary. Well done, right? Because the whole, the whole point is not <laughs> to get it. a cavity. That's the whole point. And I, I find parents can relate to that. Orthopedic surgeons can relate to it as well as my colleagues. Everyone understands the dentistry model. Somehow, in all of mm-hmm. medicine, the dentists have the biggest buy-in to preventative medicine compared to Every yep. other specialty in all of medicine, they're the ones that have the best model. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I've, I've used that model before, actually, with adults uh, with back pain who don't want to exercise and say, if you don't brush your teeth, <laughs> yeah. you're going to hurt eventually. So your mm-hmm. back is going to hurt, too, mm-hmm. if you don't exactly. take care of it. Can you tell us a little bit about the gastrointestinal oh man, this relationship so to this? so fun. Once you look at it, you can't, you can't come back. So the diaphragm has five major functions. We already talked about its role as a postural control muscle. We know that it's a breathing muscle. You may not know that it's also a GI muscle that is going to aid both in lower GI motility for the kids who are constipated and it's going to prevent reflux or decrease reflux, as well as its role as a venous return muscle. So those are the five major functions of the diaphragm. If we focus right now just on reflux, as soon as you hear it, you can be like, oh, that explains a whole lot. Why do all these little kids have reflux? They have reflux because they increase their effort for breathing to survive because they have some problem. They were premature. They have some other pathology. They have a heart condition. There's some reason that we are seeing these kids. When you have increased work of breathing, you're going to be pulling aggressively down with the diaphragm with greater force than the gastric junction can handle alone. Now, a little bit later, I'm going to talk about how it matures a little bit differently. But in the beginning, it's supposed to be the lower esophageal sphincter, does most of the preventing of reflux, and all babies reflux occasionally. They all do a little spit up, which is just actually in the um, thoracic esophagus. But the true reflux that occurs is due to the aggressive imbalance in the breathing muscles. You'll see those kids lying on their backs arching with their heads rotated to the right because they have reflux that's been chronic. Mm -hmm. It's coming up from the left. They're trying to get away from the pain. So they arch and rotate. And then we, as therapists, sometimes make the mistake of saying, oh, they need more flexion. Let's put them in flexion. And the baby is trying to say to us, excuse me, 
I don't speak yet, but if I could, I would tell you, get off my body because I need to extend and do right rotation till you help me with this reflux. So you've got to approach that from both a medical and mechanical perspective. How can I support them to decrease the mechanical stresses that cause reflux, as well as looking at the type of food, how often they're fed, when they sleep, et cetera, and the basic positioning of positioning babies on their back who have bad reflux is just a bad idea. That's when they're far more likely to aspirate, <laughs> uh, to wind up with vocal cord dysfunction, and to wind up with some kind of pulmonary disease like asthma or sinus infections, etc. Okay, mm. now, when they get a little bit older, so let's say they're a year, they're a year old, the diaphragm is now in the right position with the esophagus so that we have a mature gastric junction. And at that point, you have the lower esophageal sphincter inside the esophagus at the exact same level that you have on the outside of the esophagus, you have the curl fibers of the diaphragm wrapped around the esophagus. So that every single time the diaphragm descends, causing positive pressure in the stomach, which should cause us to reflux. Every time we inhale, we should reflux, right? We have more negative pressure in the thorax. Mm -hmm. We have more mm -hmm. positive pressure in the abdomen and specifically in the stomach, right under the diaphragm. We should all vomit mm -hmm. every single time that we inhale. And we don't. <laughs> we would reflux once in a while. Maybe pepperoni pizza sets you off, something like that. But what happens in normal, healthy relationships is that diaphragm on the outside of the esophagus at the exact same level as the lower esophageal sphincter, it squeezes the esophagus working as a force couplet with the lower esophageal sphincter. So that when the diaphragm descends, that's when that LES needs the most support to say, whoa, 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 don't let the stomach contents come back up. And the diaphragm says not to worry, because I'm going to squeeze you and assist you in preventing reflux. So the, the research is actually, it. it's been out there for a good 15 years. And the results and treatments from it have been known for a long time. It's just for some reason, it's not general knowledge yet. I don't get it. Because the research has been out there at least 15 years. So diaphragm. So the stronger... So the stronger the diaphragm and the postural support, then you have better right. control. Right, exactly. So it could be when the child is older. When they're younger, I just want a lot of upper extremity weight bearing. So if I could have every kid crawl for, say, six months, I'd be thrilled. Um, that's not going to happen. But when you're doing your therapy, make sure that you give that child opportunities, bilateral and unilateral, to do activities that require weight bearing with the elbow straight. That drives the force back into the chest, which engages the vocal folds and the chest wall, and that assists with the diaphragm's response for stabilization. So all those things work together. But when they're a little bit older, when they're awesome. school age, they've got to be at least six. It's actually probably better at eight or nine, and that is to use an inspiratory muscle trainer. And that's simply a barbell that you would use for your biceps or, you know, putting a weight on your leg for your quadriceps, 
we're doing the same kind of thing now for the inspiratory muscles. You have the patient breathe in through essentially a tiny straw. And the one I'd recommend would be called the breather. It's the most boring name, but it's really easy to get. And it's a great little device. And uh-huh. no, I don't work for the company. So it's called the breather. Just check it out on Google or Amazon. But anyway, you breathe against resistance for inhalation, strengthen the diaphragm and the other inspiratory muscles. And it's been proven significantly through research and systematic reviews to show that it can reduce and in some cases eliminate reflux symptoms just by strengthening that gastric junction. That wow. is mind that's mind blowing. It's a forty it's incredible. Yeah. It's a forty dollar it device. <laughs> it's been shown to decrease low back pain. It's been shown to decrease reflux. It's been shown to increase lower GI motility to work on better bowel evacuation, uh, just as well as your lungs. <laughs> it's easier to have endurance. I wish I had invented that device is what I would say mm-hmm. to you because it's that it can be that powerful. You know, it's amazing yeah. what a small tool can do. I was having some SI and I just got a pillow between my legs to sleep at night and it just went away. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, of course I thought it through, I'm, you know, I'm lucky enough to have some background mm-hmm. that I can sort of figure out what was going on. But, but like just the abdominal binder or the straw or the, you know, the, these things can really realign and, and help things get right, right. used more efficiently. Do you have time for one more question? Yeah. Okay. Could you touch on torticollis? So I think with torticollis, you want to look at two different things. One is a physiologic torticollis versus a physical So a child could have poor positioning in utero, poor positioning out of utero, and actually have a mechanical torticollis. And then you combine uh, weakness of one side versus the other, and you can have mechanical torticollis. I mean, there's a lot of other reasons. I'm just doing that as an example. Mm -hmm. A physiologic torticollis looks different because it's almost always to the right, and it's almost always with trunk extension. Where when you see a more traditional torticollis, mm-hmm. where they maybe have poor positioning in the uterus and then we're positioning them on their back uh, from day one for most of the day and not as much prone positioning, just the way society has kind of gone, um, what you'll see is that the torticollis with the kids who have medical compromise is their body's in more extension and their chin is an extension as they turn to the right. And watch their eye gaze. Their eye gaze is going to be up. So you really you really want to watch that because mm-hmm. when I see that, yes. sometimes I'm coming back to the docs and saying, I don't think this is a traditional torticollis. Did you find anything with the heart, the lungs, the vascular system? Nope, it was all good. It's like, okay, that might have been good at birth. Maybe we couldn't see it, but I'd really like you to look again. And I can't tell you how often the things like a congenital diaphragmatic hernia, which wasn't evident at birth, becomes more evident as the child grows. And we see that torticollis develop later. So it might develop at a month of age and we're going, that's weird. Why didn't we see that in the first week or two? 
or it might not even develop until three months of age. And those are the kinds of things you want to come back to your medical team and say, okay, doc, you and I, we need to work together to figure this out. What's going on? Heart, lungs, vascular system, GI, there's something happening here that is causing this physiologic physical response versus just mechanical physical response. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. that's so important for people to hear that for us not to just look at what we're doing, but that there could be something else going on and we need to just make sure. And a lot of my parents are really good. If I mm -hmm. ask them to have something checked out, they will, because I'm seeing a child in home. So I'll send them mm -hmm. back to the clinic or back to the physician, back to the orthopedist, you know, back to the cardiologist and right. say, you know, double check this. You might not see it at birth. So it's not necessarily that someone missed mm -hmm. something, but that we're all working towards the same goal, which is the health and the function of that baby. And if we see something later, and sometimes we're the lucky ones, we get to see the kids more often. It might be apparent <clears throat> to us before it is apparent to the doctors who are seeing them once every three months or so. Yeah. That's right. Well, what message or would you like to leave us with? Physiology always wins. So when we're trying to get a kid to roll over, sit up, stand, ride a bike, jump, whatever it is, when they can't do it, I want you to question yourself and say, is that child's body talking to me? They're telling me I can't do it. Why? Is it because of fear, which it could be? Fine. But have I ruled out physiology? Could physiology be the underlying pathology limiting my patient's physical ability? If not, great. Go on to whatever the physical or head case they are. They're afraid to, you know, go over the curb, whatever, whatever it is. But if not, physiology always wins. So listen to the patient's body. And I think you will be a much better therapist. I'm always looking multi-system. I always assume it's physiologic until proven otherwise. So if I'm trying to get flexion, trying to get the abs activated, and I can't get it, I'm looking for reflux and constipation. I mean, that's going to be the first thing. That's going to be my go-to. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get into a lot more specifics on, you know, more sophisticated uh, physiologic compromises. But if I am seeing reflux that doesn't have to be overt, it doesn't have to be the throwing up, it's that they get hiccups all the time. It's that their breath is foul in the morning. It's that 30 minutes after they have their bottle, they're ruminating. And you're going, wait, 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 all of this can be soft signs of reflux. And then you ask mom, when you go to put them in flexion, do they arch backwards? Yes. They just don't like the activity. Huh. Yeah. Well, they don't like the activity because it's causing pain. Where you and I would just say, look at dude, I'm mm -hmm. not doing that. Because <laughs> that hurts my stomach. I'm not going to do it. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> right? But the kids can't tell us. We need to listen to their bodies. Physiology always wins. Okay. Well, that is an excellent message. And just to remind everybody, they can go to your website, masterypt.com. You have courses Lots there. Lots of publications. Research. Yeah. And 
it has just really been an honor and a privilege. You're welcome. And I just want to thank you Enjoy so much. Enjoy the uh, rest of your podcast. And thank you for serving our profession and getting out information in a way other than the written word. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your helping me spread these tips to someone you might know. Remember, today might be the day that you can make a difference. You can find me at specialneedsemotion.com or specialneedsemotion at gmail.com. Wishing you a really special day.